Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, it's a little bit of a different setup today. I'm not at home. I am in another place. I'm going to give you a clue. It smells like freedom <laughs> and tastes like high fructose corn syrup. That's right. I am in America. And this edition of the show is being recorded live at the NSA's Cyber Collaboration Center, or CCC. And we've got three special guest hosts joining us this week. We've got Morgan Adamski. Now, did I get the pronunciation correct there? You did, absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, we, uh, she runs the NSA CCC. And we've got our good friend and international man of mystery, Dmitry Alperovich. Hello. And uh, former head of NSA TAO, uh, former Orange Man cyber guy and current NSA cybersecurity director, Rob Joyce. Hey, thanks for coming in, Patrick. Uh, this is going to be great. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by Socket and Socket's founder, Feroz DJ will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about their actually not crazy use of large language models in their product. But yeah, let's get into the news now. And I want to start off this week by talking about this Okta thing. So it looks like Okta support... Uh, managed to get owned somehow. And then someone managed to steal some authentication tokens belonging to Okta customers. And we're still sort of seeing various people emerge and claim that they had their tokens stolen. Uh, so it looks like what happened is some of Okta's customers recorded these HA files. They're like session files or something and submitted them to support. Someone pinched them, pulled out the tokens and then onwards from there. But oddly enough, I mean, I think this is almost like a weird sign of progress because the attackers weren't able to do much, at least in the case of like Cloudflare, for example, because, you know, someone was able to authenticate with these tokens uh, and then they couldn't really do much because risky account actions required MFA step up, right? Let's hear from you on this, Rob. I mean, this is an interesting thing, right? Because I think SSO providers like Okta for the ecosystem, net massive win. So I can't decide if this is a good news story because it was kind of limited what they could do or if it's a bad news story because we've got, you know, an example of a, of a critical provider having an issue. Like what's your, what's your, what's a broad outline of your take on this? Yeah, I think it's a little of both, Patrick. Yeah. So the idea that we're using really well-managed identity to authenticate into these networks, that's that's the the entry point to get into business these days. Because yes. if you have weak authentication, you're going to get owned. And and the opposite side of that is we continue to see compromises in you know a couple Okta events now. Um, you know, Cloudflare even threw some some shade at them yeah. when when they titled their well, blog. They, yeah, and they had a, they had a yep. recommendations for Okta section, which is just like ooh, yeah. Burn. But this goes way back. You look mm. all the way at the RSA token compromise in 2011. Yeah. If you're managing identity for for hard targets, um, you are going to get subject to very elaborate high end exploitation. So the companies that are providing it, they've got to have their a game each and every day. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they didn't appear to get very far though. I mean, obviously it's yeah. early days. We don't really know. But I think that's the thing, isn't it? Like if that's why, that's why the scattered spider stuff was such a big deal yeah. is because they actually removed the MFA requirement for super admin accounts. And I, I almost feel a bit for Okta here because first of all, you mentioned the previous intrusion. It wasn't much of an intrusion. Like when the attackers only get a screenshot, I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I find it hard to say that they were they were breached in that instance. And then more recently, they put out that blog post advice warning people about what later turned out to be the scattered spider approach of you know tricking people into resetting MFA. 
At the same time, and we know this, at the same time, the same thing was happening to Microsoft customers. And Microsoft didn't put out a blog post, you know? So I, I sort of feel bad that Okta's trying to do the right thing and now everyone's just, just screaming at him. Morgan, can you add anything here? Yeah, I'm going to be a ray of sunshine, Patrick. So I think this is a good news story in the fact that this is really the stresses the importance of isolating trust and minimizing those privileges amongst users, right? So yeah. when you're in the cybersecurity community, all you deal with is breaches and sad news and stormy days. And so that is the good part of the story that yeah, I think I mean, we that's, need to emphasize. That's exactly what I'm, what I'm getting at, where, where the good news is that this type of event isn't, you know, uh, the death knell. Like you could have this happen and the fallout's actually not too bad, which, you know, is amazing. I also appreciate the part that we're constantly talking about breaches and what actually happens and people are coming forward and saying, this is yeah. how I solved it or this is what happened. Because if we hide that, that's how we don't benefit. We really don't benefit for those type of conversations. Yeah. I mean, when you look at it from an adversary perspective, here you have access to the support portal from an IT uh, user's perspective at Okta. You have access to all these session keys that are being submitted and you get caught so quickly, right? Yeah. They must be so frustrated by this, right? Yeah. You had a you know equivalent of a nuclear weapon here and it was neutralized. We've got to be careful though, because like someone might have been done here that we don't know about, you know? But like so far, all we've got, like one password came out, I think just like yesterday, saying that they had seen some activity from this as well. So we had one password, Beyond Trust and Cloudflare. You know, I, d I am a little bit concerned that maybe there were some companies that don't have quite the same capability who, who were affected but here. Presumably but Okta was able to go through all the support well, cases yeah, and yeah, look yeah. at all the files that have been submitted. But they had two weeks. So let's let's see. But uh, yeah, I think, I think we all agree that almost like this is a breach that's a sign of progress. It is. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's move on. Go on, no, you had something there, Dimitri. Go no, on, just, don't just hold the that fa thought. The fact that it was able to be caught in those two weeks is pretty remarkable. It didn't yeah. go on for many, many months. So... From a sign of progress, we're going to go completely the other way right now. And we're going to talk about this Cisco iOS XE thing because I, I didn't do a weekly show last week because I was getting ready for this trip. And it's the, the risky biz holiday curse in full swing, which is somehow someone cobbles together some O'Day for one of these Cisco uh, operating systems and they weaponize it. They go nuts with it. And I, I mean, the numbers we're seeing are crazy, right? So we, we're seeing the headline that I got in front of me says 42,000 devices have been owned by people unknown. Oh, and I will just mention too quickly with the Okta thing. One thing that I've appreciated about this is that we're not actually talking about who the threat actor is, which is a really interesting, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because normally something like this would happen even a couple of years ago and so much of the conversation would be about the who. So I think that's an interesting progress marker as well. Uh, although I am in a room full of people who do care deeply about attribution. <laughs> but anyway, that's for you to worry about, not for everybody else, right? So, so another situation here where Threat Actor Unknown has gone out and just rinsed all of these Cisco iOS XE boxes. I mean, do they even have a patch out yet? I, I, they do. They do, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, this is nuts. This is the sort of thing that you expected to happen in 2001, not 2023. Rob, let's start with you. I mean, what do you even say about something like this? This is a mess. Yeah, um, I, I almost go back to the Hafnium event, right, where it was a flaw in something that's widely pervasive across the internet, um, and somebody decided to seize a lot of internet high ground for future operations. And the question is, you know, why did they want it, and why did they work so hard to hold on to it? So. It, if you followed the weekend news, right, it, it came out 
and then it looked like somebody tore down most of the excesses. It went from tens of thousands to a few hundred. But then it, then it looks like maybe that was the threat actor doing it themselves or just better concealing their access into those boxes. Yeah, so they actually didn't go away. It was yeah. it was the uh, the actors updating their implant so that it wouldn't respond to these queries and be easily detected. Yeah. So um, I think it was Fox IT came out with a, a method to to query these across the internet and they found something like forty six thousand still alive. Yeah. Um, so somebody's trying to hold those um, hold those accesses. Um, to what end? I got to ask. Like, what what do you do with forty two thousand? iOS XA, I mean, it, it, it's really good for DDoS, but you're going to attract so much heat. I just sort of, I, I can't figure out, like, who this serves, really. Yeah, it, I'm not asking you to speculate on attribution, but I'm it just, it, I'm like, why, why do this? You know, well, it's too noisy. High-end devices connected to the internet are all useful for a lot of things. We see yeah. Soho routers compromised all the time as pivot points and you can do other that and no one's going to care but this yeah. is different that's what i'm getting at yeah. like this is too it's almost like someone you know is the dog who caught the car well, here. again i go back to the hafnium event where we found the example of you know china yeah. china um hacking those boxes and instead of slinking away like a good apt they doubled down and they ran a script across the entire internet and grabbed everything they could. Yeah, and, we saw them with the Barracuda stuff as well. Very, you know, that just wasn't cricket, as we would say yeah. in Australia. I, I think somebody did this because they can, yeah. right? And and they had ideas of how they would use it, and so I, I probably feel like this is criminal in that they they wanted grand scale and had an idea and they didn't care a lot about the consequences of being caught. Now, Morgan, I want to ask you about this, right? And this is less of a current events question, right? Because mm-hmm. I know you're constrained in what you can say about current events. But this is more a question about, you know, in your job running this center, you know, I would imagine you would have to go out and speak to people about how to stop being affected by things like this, right? And the advice is just, you know, don't expose these sort of management interfaces to the internet and whatnot. I mean, that's a big part of the battle that you're fighting, right? Yeah, one of the main remits of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center is really helping the defense industrial base, which is 300,000 companies. That's huge. So what I would offer is that we go out and we talk to the defense industrial base. We say, hey, here's your exposed devices. Here's the mitigation that you want to put in place. But one thing that I think we really point to is uh, homage to Halloween, right? The callbacks coming back from inside your network. (laughs) That's initial exploitation, right? You really got to focus on, okay, when they got in your network, what did they potentially move to? Do they move laterally? What else are they after? I think one of the things we really focus on telling our partners is, yeah, that's initial access and exploitation, but you really got to think about if they got in, what else would they go after? Yeah, I guess I was just curious of of how much of your effort is, because look, for a long time, we thought, you know, there was perimeter stuff, perimeter hacking, and then everything moved client side. And now it's all going back to the perimeter, right? And mm-hmm. you actually do, you know, if you've got a constituency like that, you've got to tell them, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't have your F5 yep. exposed to the internet. Yeah, quite often we get asked, hey, what is your mitigation guidance? How do we specifically protect against this? And we go back to the stuff we were telling people 10 years ago, though. Yeah. Right? Here's the top 10 mitigations put you should have a, Put it behind a 1990s checkpoint. Right. That'll do it. Right. Yeah. Enable MFA, right? Yeah, That's yeah, like yeah. one thing we say quite often. And so it is a little discouraging at times, but if people really focus on the basic stuff, it usually helps. Yeah, you people got any thoughts are, people on? are like, uh, give me a different answer, right? <laughs> they <laughs> want something much more bespoke. We don't have it, right? Uh, Focus on the normal stuff. What do you make of all this, Dimitri? Well, this, it's is, like, this it's is a wild is, time. As you it's said, a wild time. Yeah, this is, as you said, is just going back in time. 
th th this is a long line of uh, historical cases where you've, you've seen network devices like Fortinet, Pulse Secure, getting compromised. And as Rob says, there's so much you can do with this. You can use it for DDoS attacks. You can use it as proxies to obfuscate your traffic. You can obviously use it to get inside the network if it's a particularly interesting target. So th this is going to be very valuable to, to those adversaries, either for resale, if it's criminal activity, or you know, if it's nation state for direct use. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, someone could use this for DDoS, right? And it would be terrific for DDoS because you're talking about devices that typically have extremely powerful high, high bandwidth connections. There is this HTTP2 rapid reset thing. Funnily enough, we had an outage because of this. So I finished recording. The last show I did was two weeks ago. Finished recording it. We talked about the flaw which was, uh, I think Microsoft saw massive exploitation, Amazon as well. They did a blog post, they fixed it for themselves and then posted about it. And of course, my dinky little CDN that I use didn't get the memo, so their CDN just fell over for like 24 hours. And I thought maybe they're patching it. And I realized pretty quick, I'm pretty sure that they were getting hit with this. The reason I want to talk about this one is there's not really, it's a protocol level problem. Like this is just how HTTP2 works. And it's, this one's going to get messy. But I know you actually had time because I planted the seed with Dimitri. See, I told him about this yesterday. And I knew he was just going to go and like read the spec. And he did. So why don't you walk us through actually what this problem is here? Sure. So HTTP2 is the obviously improvement to HTTP1. It's a protocol that was developed by Google to optimize handling of HTTP requests where you can basically uh, stream multiple requests through the single connection. So in previous protocols, you would initiate a different TCP connection for each request, very inefficient, particularly from a server-side perspective. But uh, one of the things that this protocol allows you to do is send the request over that connection and immediately cancel it. And what these attackers are taking advantage of is that they're set, you can only have a, a 100 requests outstanding in the protocol. So they're sending 100 requests, they immediately cancel on them, and then they're sending 100 requests again, immediately canceling them. And of course, on the service side, you have a denial of resources situation taking place because you're allocating resources to handle those connections. You get the cancellation request, but only after you've already started doing the work and then you have the new requests coming in. So there is no really protocol level solution here. What you need to do is basically build in heuristics into your servers to look for, you know, on a typical connection, how many cancellation requests are you getting? Yeah. Is this unusual? We're going to stop handling them. So it's a server by server uh, situation that you have to basically apply these heuristics to. That's why there's not a patch, and there won't be a patch. Yeah. Um, everyone's well, gonna I mean, yeah, they're, they're handling own. it. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's like, and that's what makes this messy is everyone's going to have to decide how they want to address it. Yeah. But basically, this this created the biggest denial of service attack that Google and Amazon and others have ever seen because it, it basically 100Xs the potential for these layer seven attacks that we've seen, you've seen before yeah. by being able to shove so many requests in into that one connection. Well, and, and, and mitigating it isn't just a matter of soaking traffic. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like you, it's, you it's, have to change the code, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, what do you think of all this, Rob? Uh, you know, the, the DDoS is a nuisance effect until you're the victim of the <laughs> yeah. DDoS and yeah. your site is down and your business can't function. Um, you know, it's, it's a money-making activity. It's something people do for the lulls, um, but it is increasingly a weapon. So, you know, the, the Israel conflict right now, they're undergoing massive DDoS yeah. um, because the hacktivists can. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a weapon for the people. But Rob, we've also seen uh, sophisticated nation state intrusions where they're using DDoS as a way to distract 
resources and obfuscate what they're doing too, right? So it's not just a, a nuisance. It can be used to uh, uh, hide in the noise and, and uh, get, get your security teams to focus on something else. Yeah, like anything, you know, the really sophisticated actors are going to combine multiple techniques and multiple things um, to get at their goals. And so mm-hmm. DDoS may be one of those things that they bury it in the noise. Absolutely. Yeah, but I mean, DDoS has always been like a bad business. They don't make money. They don't. Like you compare it to like any other type of cybercrime, it is like total loser crime, you know. So it's great for like booting people off. Like someone keeps hitting you on a game server or whatever. You go give $10 to a stressor service who's committed so many crimes to build that booter service, right? And he's committing so many crimes by taking your $10.50 in crypto to knock off some, you know, gamer. It's, it's a pretty good business for the DDoS prevention companies. Well, exactly, right? Uh, and it's not yeah. really about making money. It's about imposing cost, it right? Is. If you've got to reallocate resources to deal with it, to Dimitri's point, if you've got to... And we saw that back in 2012, right, when the Iranians were DDoSing the financial institutions. Yeah, I that was about that. imposing yeah. costs yeah. on those companies and just hurting did their it, business. Though. did it, Because yeah. it was mitigated pretty easily. Like, you know... It was still in the early days when we were figuring out how to yeah. really mitigate those type of attacks. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just think DDoS, yeah, I, as I say. But I, I think, think hacktivists are the ones who are keeping this alive these days. They're the ones yeah. who are executing it with the most impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, I did just change the order, as I said, because we actually had a bunch of other stories in here that I didn't really want to talk about in detail. It's just, it is one of those time warp weeks. You know, is it a time warp or is it a Groundhog Day? It's something, it just feels eerie when we're still talking about <laughs> Atlassian Confluence CVEs being used. I'm so sorry as an Australian for, for Atlassian. Uh, I'm so sorry. I, I do want to apologise to you because I know you look at the people in this room look after the defence industrial base and I'm sure they're what we would call heavy users. And uh, yeah, yes, it's uh, quite bad. And then there's this JetBrains thing that North Korea's using and we've got Citrix putting out patches for Netscaler uh, that are being bypassed as well. Like it just, it's, it's been a rough couple of weeks, you know? It certainly feels that way. Um, You know, for us, though, the focus is often on, you know, who's doing this and why. And I'll tell you, you know, certainly Atlassian, that's in the top 10 list of exploited vulnerabilities by the PRC. I'm so sorry. So I'm so sorry. see it all the time. And and then as we talk about the Citrix Netscaler, Again, we saw the Chinese build a custom backdoor for that. So yeah. they've spent a lot of time and energy in a capability they lost, but they built expertise on Netscaler architecture and infrastructure. So they're going to keep coming back at this stuff. But that's expertise worth having. You it, know what I mean? Because there's so much of that stuff yes. out there. And, and, and th- there be dragons, I guess, is what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. So the, the other thing this brings out to me is, you know, why do you keep seeing similar devices or similar products keep getting exploited. Because um, they're not very good. Well, no, <laughs> Google Project Zero does some really great stats where they talk about when you find a flaw, when you get a, a, a zero day mm. and generate a CVE, chances are good around that there is more flaw. Yeah. Um, there are other things that... Because this is a target-rich environment. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the coding practices are bad, the choice of non-memory safe languages, et cetera, et cetera. It means there's other things there, and we keep seeing these devices exploited because there's adjacent flaws. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many more Fortinet bugs are we going to see, right, for example? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so let's now talk about North Korea's moneymaker. Uh, this has been in the news 
a lot over the last few years, but we've got uh, a great write-up from Kim Zetter, you know, dishing more details on how these, you know, these poor North Koreans are being sort of forced by the government to go and get, you know, work-from-home jobs with Western companies. And, you know... It probably beats other jobs that would get in North Korea, though. Well, it would... <laughs> That's true, but it would be even better if they got to keep the money instead of just sending it all to the government, right? Which is which is how this works. But you know, there's a, there's a, there's often a reaction on this, which is, oh, they're just trying to get access to these organisations so that they can do, you know, steal money and uh, do fraud and steal crypto and whatever. But it really does look like this is a money making enterprise for the North Korean government, which is, hey, we've got an educated workforce, let's pretend they're from somewhere else and get them doing some of these jobs. What a world! You know, as I was reading that write-up from Kim, and the level of effort they go through to get those jobs, uh, you know, stealing fake IDs, hiring people to do the interviews, proxying their connections through other people, and then actually having to do the job just to get the money, I just kept thinking, isn't it just easier to steal crypto? This is yeah. a lot of work to just get a salary. <laughs> Seems like there's a lot of easier ways to, to do crime and, uh, and fund the, the regime. Obviously, they're doing a lot of that as well. But it is interesting that they're diversifying into doing actual work. And apparently, some of that work is actually quite good. Yeah. They I deliver. Mean, it, well, the crazy thing about North Korea is it is just such an organized crime organization. Like, these days, that's what it seems like. And this is what uh, an organized crime org, this is how they do it. Right? You know, if it makes money, do it. My lesson learned is sanctions actually work. Because yeah. look how creative the North Koreans have to be to come up with these ideas, whether it's, you know, the IT workers or it's the crypto scams or the, the energy to fish zero days out of the, uh, the security community. They're working hard, man. Yeah. It's the ultimate outsourcing business. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's what they need to do, you know, like be, become fluffy bunnies and then they can have great IT services to the rest of the world. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, now we've got some new good news, uh, which is the there's been a Ragnar Locker, they're a ransomware crew that, you know, you, often you hear about the takedowns of these ransomware crews and it turns out to be affiliates or it turns out to be some ransomware developer where the ransomware was never used. Uh, this is Ragnar Locker, that this is a big one. Uh, the leak site has gone down, there's been a couple of arrests. Um, looks like some of them were in Europe, maybe one in Ukraine. Uh, I think there'd been some previous arrests from this group, but it looks like, yeah, they're definitely having a very bad time. I think if you're not Russian, it's really dumb to do ransomware, and this is why, right? Well, the, the guy that they arrested is actually one of the lead developers from Czechia. So yeah. taking down developers is important because there's only so few people that are working on developing ransomware uh, codes. So um, I think it's going to be impactful. Yeah. One of the big conversations we've been having on the show is like looking at the long long period takedowns that the FBI is doing, like Hive is a good example of that, and these investigations and whatever, and they love just going and collecting evidence, which isn't quite the cyber knife fight that I've been advocating for, but it does look like gradually we're getting to a point where it's starting to feel like authorities are getting serious about tackling this problem way too late, but, but it's finally happening. I mean, what's your sense of how all this is working out? Rob? Well, I'll tell you, FBI is doing an incredible job, and, and it's not just them. It's all of the relationships they have and the partnerships, so international partnerships with industry, with us, with CISA. Um, you know, I think the, the tools they're applying, um, they're eroding the trust inside that ecosystem, right? You, you, can't, you can't trust that the person you're talking to 
is part of the think, criminal yeah. gang you used to work with. You can't trust that this site hasn't been penetrated and the FBI is not behind the secure messaging app. And, and that activity has just really had a huge impact on the ecosystem. I mean, has it though? Because we haven't felt it yet. And I think that's the, that's the criticism that I get from other people is they're like, well, you know, it's not like ransomware is slowing down. So, you know, I mean, are, are we going to start feeling this eventually? I think without the governor of what they're doing today, it would be, worse. It would yeah, be yeah, yeah, a 10x yeah. issue. 10x, that would yeah. be quite a thing, uh, wouldn't it? Uh, now, we've also got this, I don't know, study out of Lloyd's of London. Did you have a chance to read this one, Dimitri? Cause I, I did, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So there's, <laughs> they're saying there's like a, a 3% chance, so they're saying it's a 1 in 30 year risk uh, you know, the same way that we do that with flood events and things like that. So one in 100 year flood or, a, you know, one in 30 year flood. They're saying there's a one in 30 year risk of a hypothetical cyber attack targeting the finance sector and like transaction processing and stuff that would cost the world economy 3.5 trillion US dollars. On one hand, I mean, okay, sure. But on the other hand, I, just, I think how would you stage an attack that this could do bogus. that much damage? I'm yeah. sorry, this is bogus because... There's talking about the entire sector being targeted, an update being propagated to all these devices, and assuming that recovery cannot be done quickly. Like, this seems like so um, ridiculously unlikely to me. I, I don't buy the 3% likelihood at all. I, I'm with Dimitri. You know, if there's one sector that has its act together, it's the finance sector because they can quantify the risk. They can uh, assess Aren't how much it would cost. Are you responsible for helping the defense industrial base there, <laughs> Mr. Rock? Yes, and if I said there is one sector, <laughs> no, the, the, the defense industrial sector has I want to point out that Morgan is shaking her head right now. <laughs> <laughs> They've come an enormously long way. And yeah. especially if you look at the big companies, um, they are exceptionally well buttoned up as, uh, as we've developed over time. But what they have is the whole ecosystem then cascades down into the small um, subcontractors yep. and the adversaries go after them. And even um, they've learned that we all have lawyers. And so the law firms that do your M&A, they, um, they do your intellectual property and yeah, your Supply patents, chains don't just exist with software, right? They get hit. And when yeah. was the last time you met the CISO of a law firm? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the bigger problem here that, that I think a lot of these studies underestimate and having been part of the response to a lot of these wiper attacks from the Ramco cases, Sony wipers, not Petya, you name it, people don't appreciate how resilient companies actually are. In fact, most companies don't appreciate how resilient they are until something like this happens. And they figure out how to make their business continue to run. Like Merck suffered you know, devastating attack during not Petya. The shipments of their goods still went on. Right, they went back to pen and paper. They were able to trace things. It was ugly. It was really, really difficult. It was absolutely a nightmare for them, but they figured it out. So I think in a lot of these situations, a lot of these companies will figure out how to get back up really, really quickly. I think this is one of the problems I have with uh, you know some of the more dire predictions of cyber war. Is there's people who might do research into you know various critical systems and stuff and say, see, you know, we 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 take down these systems and everything stops, and it's like. I think my joke to you was when we were talking specifically about some of the software involved in the F-35 program. You know, there's been research in that, which is bad. There's stuff they've got to address there. But also, like, people will load those planes with a hammer if they have to. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I understand that maybe not everything's going to be working that great, but 
the idea that you could just completely stop everything with just computer. I mean, I do. Well, I look, know, I hope I'm. I, 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 I know Morgan I'm, is going to be talking about Viasat later, but that's a perfect example, right? Where you had a tactical success by the Russians, but then you had Starlink come in, other methods of communications, and the Ukrainians were able to basically get their comms up and running relatively quickly. So, look, let's let's get into that part of the discussion now. So Morgan's here, who's been hanging back, hanging back in the news segment, uh, and is ready to talk all things CCC. So, look, why don't we just start off for the listeners? Uh, we have previously talked about the CCC on the show with Rob, uh, but it would be good to just recap exactly what it is that you do here. Yeah. What so would you What would you say <laughs> you actually do? Uh, so we defend the DIB first and foremost, but uh, the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center is really about taking what we know from an NSA perspective, our insights, our technical expertise, and ensuring it gets into the hands of the people who need it most and can action it. Mm. It is operationalizing intelligence. Um, that is a fundamental shift for NSA and is something we've been doing over the last three years or so. And so um, one of the main things that we've done is ensured that we can share information at the unclassified level. When a lot of people talk about information sharing, when you get to like the second and third layer of that conversation, people are not exactly sure what it should look like and why they're doing it. And really what we're trying to do is when people ask for context, intent, to help with prioritization and how they put resources against the problem, that's where we want to play into that conversation. You, you could tell people why they need to be doing something instead of just telling them to do it. Well, it's it comes down to the fact that we just don't want to take technical indicators and throw them over the fence and yeah. be like, good luck, I hope you figure it out. And oh, by the way, we're not really sure if this is the data you need, but we hope it's helpful. I mean, that that's not going to work. And, yeah. you know, we've seen over years that the constant targeting of the defense industrial base, right? They're targeted well, every and, single and, day. And, I mean, let's be frank, there's some successful operations against the U.S. defense industrial base as well. Like, this was a problem. Yeah, and to Rob's point earlier, when a foreign adversary has a list of requirements of things that they need to find out about and learn about, they're going to continually hit that target every single day until they get it. Mm. And so... We have to help them in this space. We have to say, hey, here's who's coming for you. Here's what their capabilities are. And this is how you protect against it. And oh, by the way, when you kick them out, they're going to come back tomorrow. Mm. And so that's why it has to be a constant conversation that we're having. I mean, it's a bit of a surprise, I think, to people outside of this space that the defense industrial base was kind of lagging, uh, you know? Well, it's huge. I mean, yeah. there's so many companies that are part of the defense industrial base and defense contractors. And it's not necessarily the big primes. The primes have robust, significant threat intelligence teams, right? Even though they're getting hit every day, they have a lot of talent. Some of it's come from NSA. Uh, and so um, we know that they can do it. But when you talk about the small to medium-sized companies, the people that are producing those critical components for the F-35, like we have to be talking to them and giving that them that level of support because they can't ingest all this information. They can't protect themselves from nation state threats. So we have to be yeah. there with them. It's interesting. I mean, I remember seeing recently, I think it was the North Koreans hacked into one of the Russian rocket manufacturers. And I'm like, wow, they must be doing all right at NSACC. They're having to go <laughs> off and, you know, get their get the second best. Yeah, rockets. we want to make it harder for them. We want them to go <laughs> against the other targets, particularly <laughs> our adversaries would be phenomenal. Yeah, right? what, a, what a result, right? <laughs> like that, that's fantastic. Win, I'm gonna put they that. just want to make sure they, they're getting the real stuff for the shells that they're providing to the Russians. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. A bit of an audit, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so look, one of the things you were able to do recently was go and uh, do a talk at Black Hat about the Viasat hack. And I think you did that in conjunction with them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a huge win for us to be able to publicly come out. If you would have asked me three years ago if we would be standing on stage next to a big company talking about an operational success for NSA, that was unheard of. Um, and so we went with them and we talked about what happened on the 24th of February. The fact that we had built this longstanding relationship with Viasat um, and they gave us that call and they said, hey, 
we've got an issue. We don't think this has to do necessarily with some type of misconfiguration. We have an attack. And within five days, they shared technical artifacts with us, right? And we were able to take that information and really understand how the attack happened, right? What we knew about potentially who was behind it. Attribution does matter to us here yes. at NSA. But most importantly, build tailored mitigation guidance that we were able to give to all the other SATCOM providers that were providing communication support. Now, did, they, did those mitigations get tested? Yes, absolutely. Like, how do you protect against this? I mean... No, no, what I mean, what I mean by tested, I mean, yeah. did Russia go after those ones as well? Yeah, we see constant targeting of all the SATCOM providers, right? Okay. That is that is a constant thing, and it's not just from the Russians, right? It's from everybody. They recognize the significance that if you're able to disrupt communications, especially on a military front, um, it has huge impacts. And so they're going to constant. that's a constant requirement that we always see. I mean, it feels like Ukraine, the thing that we've learned, the two technologies that have come out as like kind of wild cards. I mean, for us outside, maybe not so much for the people in this room, uh, but it has been SATCOM and uh, FPV drones specifically. Like we saw ISIS 10 years ago putting grenades on drones and whatever, but now we're seeing these FP FPV carcasses with like RPG seven rounds zip tied to them, taking out tanks. And it's like that. those seem to be the two things that are really crazy you know i mean and we learned a ton and we're still continuing to learn a ton from that conflict both in the cyber domain right how do you protect against all the things that the russians were throwing at the ukrainians industry was huge in that space they really were seeing it on the front lines um and i would offer that we weren't the only ones learning from that crisis right our adversaries were also watching it and so it's something that we're going to have to evolve from pretty quickly yeah yeah now look uh, another couple things because we've got a couple more topics we want to get through with you uh today uh, another thing that you highlighted is something you'd like to talk about is actually the, uh, the, the PRC's switch to more living off land techniques. <clears throat> and of course, you know, we've seen public reporting on this, telcos in Guam getting hit, and we've seen some interesting reports come out about, um, you know, their various living off the land techniques. Now, living off the land is not new, uh, certainly, but we are seeing a big pivot into it from Chinese threat actors, Chinese government threat actors, they are doing some cool stuff. Like, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're improving the in-the-wild practice of, of, of using lol bins and, and just living off the land generally. Um, but why is it you wanted to talk about it? Because I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, it's something we're really concerned about in terms of, like, scope, scale, and sophistication. To your point, they're doing some really unique things, things that we're concerned about. And the fact of the matter is, is, right, it was talked about in the annual intelligence assessment by DNI Haynes. They, you know, they have the ability to disrupt our... Dis um, degrade U.S. critical infrastructure in areas that aren't just espionage, right? And it talks about pipelines and oil. Um, it, this, you know, it's crossing a line for us, and it's something we really want to focus on. And so we're most concerned about it. And the fact of the matter is, is that PRC cyber actors have evolved significantly over the last couple of years. They've learned, they've they've honed in on their trade craft. They're just going to get continually better. You know, Rob talked about it earlier, and the fact that in the Hafnium they doubled down on exploitation after being well, called and out. And again with the Barracuda stuff, and the, and the really like because I've had some interesting discussions around that with people. And the interesting part about that was that I think the problem that we had was that they burrowed so deep into those those devices that they were going to have to be, you know, wood-chippered. Yeah. And they would have done that knowing that they'd already been rumbled. And so they're just imposing extra cost. And just being, you know, the, 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 it just as I say, it just wasn't cricket. Yeah, and in May when we released the cybersecurity advisory on living off the land activity, right, you'll see at the end of the acknowledgement section, there's like 11 industry partners that help build that hunt guide. I will tell you in weeks or days, weeks, hours, it all kind of blends together at this point, of briefing that to various sectors and industry partners. There are times when we had multiple people come back to us and they're like, hey, can you just send us over the IOC list? 
we're like, no, 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 that, that's not how living off the land works. Yeah. Like, you're going to have to put some significant resources there behind it. There are no file hashes here. I know. It It was, you know, and that's hard to explain to people. And it so takes that's, a lot that's of why investment. Yeah, that's why I was asking, why is it that you yeah. want to talk about? Like, what's the message here? And I think, and, and, and the, it really comes to the question, like, why is PRC doing this? And I guess it's because defenders aren't used to thinking about it as the, you know, the be-all and end-all of an adversary's tradecraft, right? Yeah. So they're, they're more thinking like file hashes and IPs and whatever. Yeah, we've got to yeah. up our game. You've got to die yeah. identity access management. You've got to know what your sysadmins are doing. Are they in every single day? Are they actually supposed to be doing the activity that you see them doing? Or is that suspicious, right? And mm. that takes a lot of time and effort to build those life cycles and that behavioral analysis. And so, so it's really, this is a, this is a counter detection thing, you yeah, think? It's, yeah, it's, it's going to take a lot of work to find them and know by the way, when we do, they're going to come back. Yeah. And so it, it is going to take a concerted effort across everyone in the industry, as well as the net defenders, to really put a lot of time and effort behind this. Yeah. Although I have to say that if your IT administrator, your average IT administrator knows these really esoteric Windows commands, you should give them a raise because <laughs> chances are they don't. <laughs> I know. And part if of that they're is like sideloading DLLs to do some administrative yeah. function, you're like, hey. I mean, we're all upskilling to new tradecraft, right? Like yeah. we've got to learn how to detect this and really defend against it. And that's going to take a lot of work for us, especially on living off the land techniques. I mean, you were, but you were familiar with living off the land, obviously, when you were still at CrowdStrike. And, you know, uh, you and I, all the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and you and I have been talking about that a lot. I mean, one thing that I actually like about EDR platforms is it's capable. They're capable of viewing all sorts of execution events and whatever. But I don't know. You can still. The problem is the number of new, like, living off the land paths that people are still yeah, enumerating. But, but I'll tell you, Patrick, like, uh, one of the telltale signs was seeing these commands that you don't see before, either the, the utilities themselves or the different command switches that they were using. You're like, there is absolutely no way that any administrator in my company actually knows this really undocumented <laughs> command. too or, competent. Yeah, or, or doing something <laughs> really, really strange with a, with a standard utility. Uh, yeah. That That's often what, what uh, is going to be a telltale But some of, it can, some of it can be subtle, you know, when they find their way into, like, obscure scripting environments and things like that. Like, I just, yeah, it gives, it gives me the, uh, as well. Like pa PowerShell is probably the biggest problem because... PowerShell, at least you can do stuff like run it all in constrained language mode. Like, there's, there's and get rid of PowerShell too. Like, there's stuff you can do for PowerShell. You, you can, except that it's going to break everything in your environment, so you really can't. I think the other part that I would just emphasize, and it's one of the things that we found foundational to the CCC is that it's not just about EDR providers, it's about ISPs and tracking all the covert networks that the PRC is, is using to get into these US critical infrastructure and these companies. It's about cloud providers understanding the personas behind the tradecraft and who these entities possibly are. And then it's EDR and endpoint protection to really figure out how do you find them once they're in the network. Yeah. And it can't be in those silos. Like we have to share amongst all of us. And that's really hard to do right now because you got to get past a lot of lawyers. <laughs> And yeah. then you've got to be able to get down to the technical details and everyone that has the expertise to be able to have that conversation. And that's a heavy lift. And it's something that we're trying to perfect and it is a constant challenge. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about today is actually the AI Security Center. And I did ask you if you heard our mean joke yeah. uh, on the show about the AI Security Center, which to me sounds like something you would do when you want to get a funding bump. Mm. Uh, you know, hey, look, we're, we're doing stuff with AI. It's, you know, we're going to protect America against AI. But why don't, you, why don't you actually walk us through what this AI security center is? Because this is a CCC thing. Yeah, so absolutely. General Nakasone, um, end of September, announced that the AI security center will be part of the Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. And really what it is focused on is, again, what 
we think are our superpowers and what we do best. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that we've been looking at AI technology for years here at the National Security Agency. Um, we recently did a study across the agency to think, okay, where do we really need to focus our efforts and have a more concerted um, lean forward on how we're looking at things? And AI security was one of those key aspects of it. When we think about AI security, it's really about protecting AI companies, um, their networks, and their intellectual property. We want to maintain that, to your point, America, freedom, uh, U.S. competitive advantage. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> Great. Uh, the I've, got the I've, got an I've got an America button. What can I say? It's I'm, great. It's I love having get an America out of my button. Head every time I say AI security <laughs> center, so thank you for that. Uh, but we're, we want to ensure that we're helping those companies protect themselves from adversaries that want yeah. to steal that technology. And then separately, we want to really look at the AI lifecycle, everywhere from data collection to deployment to operations, and say, how do you secure every single component and every single step? to ensure that it has that integrity behind it when we're looking at what's the output. So the you're, you're, you're trying to secure the AI ecosystem and the AI business, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it is, is AI is security, not AI safety. Yes. Right? And so that's a little bit different. When that's someone else. That's good. Let Google worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let the hippies do that, you know? Yeah. AI safety applies to us when we look at how do we take AI technology and use it in national security systems in the defense industrial base, right? Because yeah. we have those national manager roles. And so we play both sides, but mostly that AI security aspect is why it's named the AI security. Yeah. I mean, it's just wild when you start thinking about the implications of the AI boom to even global security, right? When you've got you know, TSMC with just such a stranglehold on the ability to make this hardware. And anyway, that's a whole other topic that I'm seeing people already shift uncomfortably in their chairs. So we'll just... Uh, <laughs> no, but this, this, makes, this makes total sense for you to do because it is one of the administration's key priorities to deny the PRC the ability to develop advanced AI models, right? That's what all the chips export controls are all about, yeah. uh, preventing their own AI companies, which just ended up on the entities list uh, last week, uh, of being able to manufacture those chips, including on TSMC fabs. So one way they could get around it is by stealing the models directly from our AI companies. So you got to protect that too. But I mean, the, the hardware part of this is so big as well. I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at with the TSMC thing is because it's great to have the world's best models, but if you don't have the gear to run them on, at yeah. scale, right? At scale, because it's just so computationally expensive. The hardware's expensive. Everyone wants it. This stuff is essentially going to be rationed. For the next 10, 20 years, AI is going to be expensive. Well, I think the, the bigger problem, and I talked about this on my own podcast with one of yours, uh, Gil Herrera, who runs research here at NSA, is the real problem with AI right now is the error rate, right? When you're upwards of 10% uh, in terms of error rate, it's fine for applications where you're going to have a human review it. But when you don't, it goes back to what we kind of talked about, you know, NSA, we've got insights into how adversaries want to exploit specific companies. That's our superpower. That's why we're going to share it through the CCC because we've built those relationships. And secondly, we're taking the hacker mindset and we're applying it to defense, right? How do you protect the models? And yeah. so that, that's really our strength. And but why isn't this outside here. of your typical constituency? You know, the people developing these models? No, so um, AI technology, key component for the defense industrial base, right? Of course. It's operationally yeah. relevant. So those companies that we but want But if you get wind of something going after like a civilian, you know, non-classified, non-dib company, I mean, is that something you're, you're ab even able to move on? Uh, yeah, because if, especially if it's our insights, but we're, we're gonna partner with FBI, we're gonna partner with CISA, right? That's the whole aspect yeah. of ensuring who's who's the best position to have that conversation. Um, it also comes down to like, who's just got the better relationship with the company, right? Yeah. And that, that's really where we find comfort in trying to share as much information as possible. Is there a company out there that's not part of the dip? Doesn't everyone <laughs> sell to the DOD? There are a few, Dimitri. I don't know it off the top of my head, but I'll get back to you. 
All right, well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Morgan Adamski, Rob Joyce, Dimitri Alperovich, thank you so much for uh, joining me to do this podcast. Woo. Hey, thanks for schlepping microphones all the way from Australia. It's really appreciated. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. I'd like to say a big old thanks to everyone at NSA who made that happen. That was a lot of fun. It was great to come out and uh, meet everyone. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Feroz Abukadije, the founder of Socket. Socket is a software supply chain security company that can stop malicious packages getting into your software. And Feroz and his colleagues have been playing around with LLMs lately, and the use case here actually sounds pretty reasonable. So here's Feroz explaining how Socket is using LLMs to explain things to users, but also uh, to automate some analysis of software packages and changes made to them and whatnot. Uh, it's interesting stuff. Here's for us. Yeah, so Socket, we scan and analyze all open source packages that are published to NPM, PyPy, and the Go uh, ecosystem. So we're looking at all this open source code. It's too much for a human to analyze, right? Um, way too many packages. We look for signals in those packages that indicate the package could be malicious. Uh, and so just to be clear, Malicious is different than vulnerable, right? So we're looking, I mean, obviously, um, a lot of the times when people think of open source security, dependency security, they're thinking of uh, vulnerable packages. Um, we obviously do that, but also um, where the LLMs are most useful actually is in looking for malicious intent, right? Um, so when we find uh, signals that indicate the package is malicious, um, we use LLMs in two ways. Uh, the, the first and kind of the one you alluded to is, is uh, where you really get it to explain in plain English to the developer what is this code doing and why should they care, right? Well, I mean, you say so, plain English, but it could just as well be plain German or plain Japanese, right? Which is another nice thing about <laughs> LLMs, but go on. Yeah, fair, fair point. Um, we, don't have, uh, we don't have that piece uh, working quite yet, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 you know, one way to think of it is that you take this machine output, right? Think about the output from a lot of, of, of the tooling that we use every day. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's not necessarily something that a developer um, that doesn't care about security that much is just trying to get their job done. They're just trying to ship a feature. You know, it, it, it's something you can use to explain the alert and why they should care. I um, mean, so that's how we've used it, right? I mean, when, when we find uh, a package that's been compromised, we can explain literally there, you know, in English to them what the problem is. So we can say it reads environment variables from this, you know, from your environment, and it sends them to a random IP address. Like, okay, uh, you know, pretty clear uh, that that's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just uh, did a screen share before we started recording and showed me. Well, you know, there was one instance where it was some uh, package that got published that, you know, it takes a bunch of environment variables and throws them into a Telegram channel. Right, mm -hmm. which, and I'm guessing it's not LLM-based analysis that's triggering the alert, but being able to explain that in in plain language uh, to a developer is probably more useful than just triggering an alert where there's a bunch of strings in it and uh, suspect strings in it and stuff for them to look at. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's also pretty good at at indicating like if if we're not sure that something's malicious, um, but we still want to flag it for um, because it doesn't have that many downloads and it looks sketchy. I'll give you an example. Right obfuscated code is added to a package, right? Um, having the LLM explain why that's bad is, is really useful. So it, it can, it, it's, you'd be surprised actually, it, it can oftentimes 
deobfuscate the code. And you know, I'm not definitely not trying to say this is a, a panacea and can catch, you know, can can deal with everything. But we, we find cases all the time where we've caught malware that's still live on npm or pypy. It's out there, and developers could install it if they were so unlucky as to, you know, install that package at that at that moment. Um, and yeah, and we're you know we're, we're catching it, and the alert will come out saying something like, you know, this script is obfuscated, and it, uh, you know, it it dynamically creates functions uh, through string concatenation to collect the user's environment variables and send them to a remote server. That's, a, that's an actual, I just read that off on my screen, that's an actual alert. So, you know, it, I'm, I'm always, I guess I'm surprised at the number of ways you can use these things. Um, they're not, you know, going to solve all our problems, but they're definitely good at explaining things and they're definitely yet another signal to use when, when trying to figure out if something is malicious. Yeah, so I mean, one thing that I've been saying and banging on about quite a lot over the last few months is that I see this stuff as being primarily useful as a interface, as a way of connecting people to computers through language, right? And and I think there's all sorts of productivity benefits that come from that. So certainly the main use case that you've mentioned fits into that, right? And and just mm-hmm. with Corelight, like explaining alerts, and now you're doing the same thing. You're basically explaining the alerts, you know, have a look at this alert and tell the user uh, uh, why it's occurring. But it also seems like there is that that actual analysis component as well. And like with what Grey Noise is doing with SIFT, it seems like there is actually some analysis going on with the LLMs. So I guess, you know, I, I guess what I'm getting at is perhaps I was wrong in just saying that it was um, purely an interface thing. But it seems like, they are distinct. They're distinct uh, functions, aren't they? There's the mm-hmm. there's the interface function and, and the analysis function. Where mm-hmm. does it fall over though? Like, because you would have played around with this quite a lot. Like, what hasn't it been able to do? Mm. Yeah. So um, it definitely can't, you know, deobfuscate like arbitrary, uh, you know, arbitrarily obfuscated uh, packages. Um, it, it definitely, uh, you know, sometimes uh, it. it thinks things are malicious that are merely a bad code, right? Like you'll see a lot of just, you know, to put it, to put it mildly, I guess, you know, there's a lot, probably most open source packages you shouldn't use, right? Like there's just a yeah. lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there that I would say maybe the So it, it can't distinguish bad malicious from bad incompetent. Yeah. And there's a lot of bad incompetent. I mean, there's a lot of packages out there that where, you know, we'll find that there's a network call being made and the package has no business talking to the network, right? And so... Um, that's where the LLM can actually be helpful, right? If, if, you, if you prompt it correctly, you can get it to say, okay, given the purpose of this package, right? Like what, um, you know, what could the, the, this network call be doing, right? What data is, it, is this file looking at? What, where is the data going? And you can get it to, uh, to, to sort of do a little bit of thinking there um, for you. So I'm guessing you've rolled this out into the product. You've actually got mm-hmm. people using it. Like what's the feedback been like because you know this is all new stuff like uh you know are people telling you it's magic or are they just like eh, it just becomes normal mm. uh i mean we're we're rolling it out um it's i mean it's been rolled out uh for a while and um it's it's how we catch you know we catch about uh you know several hundred packages per week that are malicious that are being published to all these different um package managers um but I mean, so, you're catching them. You're not catching them necessarily with the LLMs, are you? I mean, you're catching them with different signals and then just getting the LLM to explain it. I mean, how how many? Well, that's the question. How many are you actually catching with LLM-based analysis? And you know, are the false positives that you alluded to there making that tricky? So, you know, since we rolled this out in, uh, I think it was March, uh, we've detected about eight thousand seven hundred packages using 
LLMs that are malicious. Now, we, when we find something that's malicious, we, we report it and try to get it taken down from these registries to protect the community um, uh, and, and then uh, block it for anyone who's a Socket customer so that you know, if their developers are unlucky enough to update or, or, or uh, typo and install or whatever, however you know, they end up pulling these packages in, they'll be protected. Um, so you know, people are benefiting from it already. Um, we've seen cases where you know, Dependabot will uh, bump a package to fix a CVE, um, but then that, that new version uh, actually has some protestware in it. Um, we talked about protestware last time where yeah. you know, maintainers maliciously modify their packages. And so then the socket bot will come in on that pull request and say, hey, actually, <laughs> you know, don't, don't update that. Uh, and so you'll have the, bot, the war of the bots uh, fighting each other on the pull requests. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we definitely, um, you know, it's a core part of the product. It, it explains all the alerts that we send. Uh, the developer sees the explanation directly in the product. Um, people like it. And then we do have a human in the loop to go and edit those if they're not quite exactly what we want to say and what we want to put forth. So there is that, that human element as well. Well, again, I mean, that's the other thing that I've said a lot about LLMs, which is they're a productivity tool. And, you know, this is a great example of that where you still need someone to oversee it, but it can do stuff at scale, uh, you know, stuff like this. So, you know, you've got obviously signals that you will pull out, like, you know, shunting data off to Telegram bots. You don't need an <laughs> LLM to tell you that that's shady, right? So what percentage, I, I mean, are you LLMing everything that you get a hit on and doing that LLM analysis or is some of it just bypassing that step or have you just built this now into your process where you've got some signals that surface it and say this is dodgy, then it gets kicked into the LLM to do a little bit of analysis and then checked by a human and then onwards? Yeah, it's the second thing you said. So Yeah, we, right. Okay. Uh, now I'm, 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 I'm much clearer now, yeah. Yeah. If you put everything into the LLM, uh, I mean, depending on, on which providers you're using, uh, but if you do it in the naive way, you know, that's a great way to bankrupt yourself and use all your Series A funding. <laughs> Send it all to OpenAI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we heard similar things from Proofpoint, right? When they're looking to understand the intent of an email and whether or not it's BEC, like you obviously cannot like throw every single email that Proofpoint mm -hmm. gets into an LLM or, you know, I think that would consume... Mm -hmm. Earth's entire energy supply, <laughs> basically to do that. So you need to do some filtering. Um, and have you been able to like, so, so you mentioned before that you can get false positives. Like, how do you tune them out of this process, right? Because at that point, you're kind of beholden to the model to get stuff right. Like if it starts making mistakes, can you actually teach it and say, hey, you keep flagging these things, and they're not malicious, can you please stop doing that? And it does? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, so we do, you know, tweak the prompts over time, and and that is actually a big open area, just not just for us, but for the whole uh, industry. Is how do you uh, modify your prompts and improve the performance of these in a measurable, systematic way? So you're not just tweaking things and then improving some areas and then making other areas worse. So you need to have like very robust test suites, benchmark suites, and have a very rigorous process to do like A-B testing across any potential change you want to make to the prompting uh, and, and to the training. Now, when we talk about generating code, as opposed to, and look, this might be a really dumb question, but if I want to commit a malicious package into some sort of public repo, can't I throw my code into an LLM and ask it to make it look not malicious to an LLM? <laughs> and would that work? I don't know about that particular case. Um, maybe we should give it a try. I mean, so that's why you don't want to go with just an LLM uh, yeah. is your only layer. I mean, you know, Socket works with a, with a whole bunch of different analysis 
I mean, that's I mean, the whole point, isn't yeah. it? Would have to bypass all of that initial filtering as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we look at stuff like, you know, who's the maintainer and do they have a history, right? Like what is the, um, you know, what is the behavior of the package? So even before you get to the LLM stuff and you just look at the, what does the core product do? Um, you know, you'd catch a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, so really concrete example is, uh, you know, there was a package that, uh, hundreds of thousands of downloads, uh, used by a ton of people. Um, and it had a uh, code added to it that would, uh, open up a uh, protest kind of uh, pop-up on production on, on your front end, you know, your website. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we, we see that it's calling window.open to do that pop-up that, that wasn't there before. Um, that's uh, a sketchy behavior. Um, and so we call that out. And that's like a, you know, that's de detecting the capabilities of the package. So it does, and we, and we consider capabilities, everything from does it open a pop-up window to like, does it access the network? Does it read your files? Does it read your environment variables? Yeah. Does it... And you processes. can't you can't hide that because it's like literally what it does. So you can't mm -hmm. ask an LLM to hide that. It's not gonna it's not gonna be possible to hide mm -hmm. it and still be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can definitely hide it in certain ways, but not. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, the code has to run. <laughs> it has to do the thing. <laughs> all right, Feroz, uh, Booker DJ, thank you so much for joining me for that conversation and all about LLMs and uh, how you're using them. Good stuff. Thanks so much, Pat. That was for us a Booker DJ there from this week's sponsor, Socket. Big thanks to them for that. And uh, you can find Socket at socket.dev. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back soon with uh, another edition of Risky Business. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.